Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. tell you I'm so glad to be here with you and see these beautiful faces and uh, just bear with me and I really expect the same compliment from you saying that you'd love to see me too yes it's good to be good to be here thank you thank you church and thank you for praying for me and every time I go on a mission trip I becomes very emotional for me simply because when I go and work or look at all these community of people, I ask one question from the Lord. Lord, how come I am different? How come you have blessed me and taken to me a land where I am free and I can enjoy my life and you provide for all my needs? Why am I so special, God? Why aren't these people getting what I am getting? It just breaks your heart when you see these things. And, and there's a Chinese proverb that comes to my mind all the time is that, you know, I was worried that I don't have a pair of shoes for my legs until I saw a man without the legs. So church, many times, as I, that's not the message I'm going to preach, but I just, it's in my heart. I just want to let you know, we are blessed. Can we say that together? We are blessed. God has blessed us with a beautiful country. A land where we are so free and we can even proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ without fear, without intimidation. But you can't do that in every part of the world. We are blessed indeed. Well, we are on a journey through the Gospel of John and we are in chapter 8 and uh, in the 8th month and it's good to be on the 8th chapter so you can remember that. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, Gospel of John chapter 8 and we'll be looking at the verses that was read to you <clears throat> verses 12 to 21 and I've given the title for today's message as the light of the world is Jesus or you can say Jesus is the light of the world. I must tell you the Gospel of John is very unique in many ways. It was penned by an aged apostle in about 85 AD, long after the other three Gospels were written. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as the Synoptic Gospels, contain many of the same stories and teachings on the accounts of the life of Christ, but told from different angle. But John's Gospel is very different. In these pages of this wonderful book, we see a side of Christ that the other gospel writers do not touch on. Now, we, we should understand that John was part of a blessed inner circle. He was with Christ during the most of his intimate moments. In this gospel, as each chapter unfolds, it presents a new facet of Jesus' divine character, revealing the different portraits of Jesus. Of course, we should remember the purpose why this gospel is written. 
we have heard this many times, I'll say it again, is found in John 20, 31, where he says, but these are written that you may believe. That's why it is written. We may believe, what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, one theologian summarized it in a beautiful way, and I loved it, so I want to just present it to you. He says in chapter 1, you see Jesus as the Word of God. Chapter 2, Jesus the Son of Man. Chapter 3, Jesus the Divine Teacher. Chapter 4, Jesus the Soul Winner. Chapter 5, Jesus the Great Physician. Chapter 6, Jesus the Bread of Life. Chapter 7, the Fountain of Living Water. Chapter 8, which you looked at last, the first part of it, uh, Jesus, the sympathetic Savior, last week you saw that in the narrative regarding the woman who was caught in adultery. And in today's text and in chapter 9, John presents Jesus as the light of the world. Everybody say light of the world. That's how John presents it. Church, we are living in an era where we ourselves have seen many religious leaders. Another way to putting it is the cult leaders who, have, who came up time to time and led many astray. Some of us older folks can remember Jim Jones of Johnstown. You remember that? There were about 900 plus people had mass suicide. They all died on the same day. You heard about Marshall Applewhite of Heaven's Gate in California. There were about 38 member, other members were found dead in a mass suicide. You heard about David Koresh of Waco, Texas. There were about 70 adults and 20 children died when the fire broke out in the building. I'm sure there are many more we can think of, and all these are leaders who could attract a group of followers by their charisma and their character. They attracted their followers. Now let us go back to the first century and see what's happening here. We have the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. They encountered a similar situation. At least, that's how they thought. They are gathered for a religious ceremony called the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booth. There are, these are religious scholars. I want you to understand, these are not ordinary people. People who are well-versed with the scriptures. They know the Old Testament very well. They know the events, the prophecies, and the teaching. But they repeatedly come across a man by the name of Jesus. All they know was he was son of a carpenter and born out of wedlock who keeps saying and making claims that they are quite disturbing to these leaders. And to them it's similar to what we felt about Jim Jones and David Koresh and the likes, and you cannot blame them completely for that. Just hear what Jesus is saying, even in today's text. What if someone proclaimed, forget about Jesus for a moment, I am the light of the world, he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Would you believe him? What if the same man had already proclaimed, we saw it in chapter 6, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall not thirst. Would you believe him? What if, what if when he said, chapter 7, if anyone thirsts, come, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
when you hear this self-proclamation, you conclude either this guy is a deluded religious nut or he is no mere man. This is God in human flesh. In today's text, we see such a similar claim, Jesus' bold claim to deity. So let us understand the context here. Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. So there were the religious scholars, the leaders, and the Pharisees. I want you to understand what happens at the Feast of Tabernacles so that you can get the message, the gist of it. You can read that in the, in the book of Numbers, chapter 29. So there were at least two ceremonies that have taken place in this Feast of Tabernacle. First, the Jews performed a ceremony where a priest went to the Pool of Siloam. He drew water in a golden pitcher. He returned in procession to the temple where he poured it out at the base of the altar. Now, why do they do that? Because it memorialized God's provision of water from the rock that sustained Israel in the wilderness. You know, even today, if you talk to the Jewish uh, people, they are very upset about what happened to them uh, in, the, in the 1940s. And they were definitely upset about what happened to them in the wilderness. So this is very personal and emotional to the Jewish audience. Now get this church, it was in this connection with that ceremony that Jesus proclaimed this. Whoever drank of him would have rivers of living water from, flowing from his innermost being. How do you take it if you are a Jew? How do you take it? The second ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles, they observed, where the Jews lit four huge torches in the court of the women in the temple, commemorating the fact that the Lord had been a pillar of cloud by day, and of fire by night to protect and guide Israel in that barren desert for 40 years. I don't think any of us have been in a desert for 40 years. Every day is a day of survival. Will I make it to the next day? Of course, this was a bittersweet memory for them. It's bitter because of the experience, sweet because they came out of it. That cloud appeared on the day when Israel left Egypt and standing as a barrier between them and Pharaoh's armies on the night before they crossed the Red Sea. Then as it went with them in the wilderness, it was a graphic symbol of the fact that the Lord was present with his people. Church, it is important to understand or know this setting to understand the weight of what the Lord Jesus is saying to them. They knew what the light meant to them. The light meant the very presence of God in their journey through wilderness. That's what it meant to them. So here is Jesus, the son of Joseph, as far as they are concerned, a carpenter, someone who was born out of wedlock, just after the ceremony of memorializing this very presence of God in the form of light, he claims boldly, and you can see in verse 20, he is speaking in the treasury, it's taught in the temple. He draws their attention, he says, fellows, listen to me, I am the light of the world. That's what he's saying. You just did all the ceremony, you reflected on what 
God did for you, I am that light. If you were standing amongst the Jews, how would you have reacted to such a claim? The bigger question I want to ask you, church, how should you respond to this astounding claim today? Today. This message is not for those who were there with Jesus in the first century. This message is for you and I. So with that intro, let us dive into the text. Verse number 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When he makes his profound statement, what do the scholars and the Pharisees hear Jesus say? Picture yourself as one of them. All they heard, Jesus' claim about his deity, it is a claim to be God. I am God. That's what Jesus is saying. Let us understand what these Jews knew at that time. In the Old Testament, the Jews recognized the pillar and the cloud as the Lord. Also, light is often used as a metaphor for God. You know in Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. They are quite familiar with these scriptures. They also know the prophecy of Isaiah about Christ. In Isaiah 9.2, it says that people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them, referring to the Messiah that they're going to see. Then we see in Isaiah chapter 60, these are all texts that they are aware of. God says to his people, the sun shall be no longer your light by day, no, for brightness shall, be, shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light. And your God, your glory. Church, we had the privilege of looking at Revelation, the book of Revelation, but they didn't at that time. Where do you see the fulfillment of this, in the, of this prophecy? Of course, in the book of Revelation. It's about to come and it's, we find that in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, where instead of the sun and the moon, the nations have the lamb as their lamp. And, the, and that lamp is identified as the Lord God. Look at this passage. There shall be no light there. They need no lamp, no light of the sun. For the Lord God, who? The Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. So it is clear to everyone listening, Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is a claim to be the Lord, of, Lord God in human flesh. Naturally, they are disturbed. They are very angry. Now they rebuke. Look at verse 13. How can a carpenter's illegitimate son claim this? Verse, verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. You know, they got to be a little cautious in the way that they are talking to Jesus because Jesus had some followers. If they just come to a direct attack on Jesus, they will have problem with the crowd that is around him. So what they are doing here, instead of asking in a different way, they are just bringing back to Jesus' own statement. We learn that in John chapter 5, where Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. 
Remember that? We studied that in John chapter 5. So here they are saying, the Pharisees are telling to Jesus, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. So Jesus, Jews are saying now, it's your own statement, it is not valid in the court of law. But Jesus quietly and calmly and confidently supports his claim to deity by giving them three pieces of compelling evidence. Come along with me, church. Verse number 14. Notice in verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. So the first defense that Jesus is presenting here has to do with his divine origin and his destiny. They could not understand it. They could not grasp it. Remember church, John chapter 1 verse 1? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. It was pretty clear. So Jesus' opponents know nothing about this. They did not know that the Word we are talking about is Jesus. So really, they have no right to even question him. The second defense he has to do with their natural inability to judge rightly. Look at the next verse. Verse number 15. See what Jesus said about their judgment. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. In other words, Jesus is saying you judge according to human standards. You judge by the criteria of a sin-infested heart filled with self-righteous pride. A heart that is deprived of the discerning power of the Holy Spirit. A heart that is only capable of judging outward appearances. Jesus says, I'm not judging anyone. That implies that I do not judge the same way that you do. That's what Jesus is saying. His third defense is about the self-witness was based upon the fact that indeed there were more than one witness. There are two witnesses consistent with the demands of the law. Look at verse 16 to 18. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. And then he's telling who the two men are. I am the one who bears witness of myself, the first witness. And the Father who sent me bears witness of me, the second witness. God the Father, God the Son. So as usual, the Pharisees missed the uniqueness of his relationship with his Father. Especially as he bears witness to the truth. So they misinterpret what Jesus said. And this is the question they ask. Look at this. In verse 19, they asked, then they said to him, where is your father? We know Joseph, but where is his father? Where is your father? And Jesus gave an appropriate response in the same verse, the second part of it. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. 
So they continued to think purely on a human level. They could only see Joseph as Jesus' earthly father. Their inability to recognize Jesus proved that they did not know the father, the very one Jesus came to reveal. Church, note this. In other words, what we are learning is that those who reject the son prove they know nothing of the father. Let me repeat that. Those who reject the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, prove that they know nothing of the Father. You know, Jesus explained that in the, in the book of Matthew, we found that in verse, chapter 11, verse 27, beautifully presented here, all things have been delivered to me by, by who? My Father, and no one knows the Son except who? The Father, nor does anyone know the Father except who? The Son. And then he say, says this, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Reveal who? The Father. What do you take from this church? You will never know the Father if the Son does not reveal the Father to you. If you reject the Son, you will never know the Father. That's what you take from this. Church, aren't you thankful that the Son willed to reveal the Father to you and me? Aren't you glad? We should be praising God for that. That He has revealed the Father to us. If Jesus had not done so, we would have never been saved at all to start with. We would remain in the darkness and emptiness of human understanding. Well, the Jews could not grasp what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and, listen carefully, no one laid hands on him for his hour had not come. What do we read here, church? Obviously, implicit in this statement is the fact that they wanted to seize him. They wanted to get rid of him. They do not agree with what he is saying. You see, animosity against Jesus was continuing to mount, but the hour of his sacrifice had not come. All of that, the hour of the sacrifice is dependent upon the sovereign will of God, isn't it? It's not the will of man. Now Jesus concludes with a profound statement, a warning to you and to me. Listen carefully. Verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away. I am going away. And you will seek me. And will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Let me read that again. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will seek me. And will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Obviously, he's referring to his death, resurrection, and ascension, but here's Christ's warning to them and to us. I am going away, and you will continue to seek me. What do we take from this church? What is Jesus referring to here is that this. You will continue to seek their Messiah, still unaware that it was he that they crucified. The Messiah was right in front of them, 
They have him right in front of them, but they refuse to believe him. So they will continue to seek him. Seek who? Their Messiah. And die without knowing him. And end up in condemnation in hell. That's why Jesus says, you shall seek me. And then he says, and you shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot come. This is such a profound warning to every one of us. Church, please note this. While the themes of this historical narrative pertain to the Jews in the first century, I want you to know that they apply to every man and every woman, even to this very day. Sinful man does not know who Jesus is, therefore they do not know the Father. This is the theme here in this passage. How sad it is to see that the vast majority of people in our day die in their sins because their persistent rejection of Christ. Millions who have passed out of this world and end up in outer darkness, the outer darkness of eternal hell because they are unpardoned, they are unfit, they are unprepared to enter into the presence of the Holy God. Why? Because they reject Christ Jesus. Some of us may be amongst them. Maybe our parents. Some of them may be our children. Some of them may be our siblings. Dear church, I hope this gives you a burden for the lost. Because if it doesn't, there is something dreadfully wrong with your Christianity. A burden to speak about Christ, a burden to reach out with His love. Because it's only through Christ that they will know the Father. So who are the ones who reject Christ, knowing that Christ is the light of the world? Those who love to thrive in darkness. The ones who will reject Christ are the ones who want to thrive in darkness. Because they know that Jesus is the light of the world, he would despise disperses the darkness in your life. The moment Jesus enters into your life, the darkness will be dispersed. Some of us don't like it because we are so comfortable in our darkness. People who like to dwindle in the darkness to flirt with sin would reject the light. You will reject the light. Because you want to dwindle in darkness. You want to flirt with sin. So you willfully reject Christ Jesus. These people who do not want to follow Jesus come up with all sorts of superficial reasons for rejecting him. What we see here with the Pharisees did, they reject the witness they had been given they were desperately looking for excuse. They could find any excuse to reject Jesus' claim. What excuse do we come up to reject Christ, the light of the world? We reject church because we want to live in spiritual darkness. Church, sin darkens our understanding and destroys our spiritual sight. Cloak cloaking us in deep darkness, uh, 
King Solomon wrote it so beautifully, but the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Wow. Let me repeat that. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. You are in darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Very profound statement, isn't it? The Apostle Paul describes those in a sinful state before knowing Christ as possessing a darkened, closed mind and a hardened heart. Hear this out, please. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. Those who live in spiritual darkness do so because Satan, the God of this world, has blinded their minds. They cannot see the glorious light of the gospel. Look at this warning, church. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand his message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, when you don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, if you are not able to understand, comprehend it, that means you are unable to see the glorious light of the good news, that means you are blinded by the devil. If you are living in continuous rebellion and we do not understand the message of the glory of Christ. If we choose to live a life of continuous rebellion, that means we have not understood this message of the glory of Christ. That's what you take from this passage. So what do we do? Those who love to live in darkness, we would just judge, just like the Pharisees did, outwardly, according to the flesh. We will justify our behavior by the standard of this world. For us, Jesus is offensive. We despite the light, for it would expose our sins. We reject the one who is the light of the world, but we still be looking for the Messiah, church. We reject Christ, but we are still looking for the Messiah because we need to be redeemed. A Messiah that would suit our lifestyle. That's the Messiah we're looking for. And Jesus says that you'll die in sins. You will look for me and you'll die in sin. And you will not come, I'm paraphrasing, the place where I'm going. What does it mean? You'll never make it to where? To where, church? To heaven. Just like these religious leaders, we too, who love to live in darkness, in our minds we come up with biblical reasons. Some of the people can quote scriptures to justify their behavior. And you see that in the televisions, you see that in the radios, isn't it? People justifying using scriptures. Eventually, we die in our sin and we cannot be where Jesus is. The evidence of spiritual darkness is that we want to get rid of Jesus from our lives. 
When you are in spiritual darkness, we don't want to open the word to read the word. Our prayers are just informal. It is just ritual. Remember this church. Eliminating Christ from your life does not eliminate God as the sovereign of the world. We can reject Christ, but God is still sovereign. He is sovereign over all things, including, we saw it in the, time, uh, in the timing of the death of His Son. Church, we should know one thing, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Either for rewards or for condemnation. Either this or that. There is no in-between. Either you belong to this camp or you belong to this camp. Then it is too late. That's what Jesus said. You will be looking for me and you will die in sin. And you cannot be where I will be. As I prepared this message, as I concluded, as I conclude this, I was reminded of a, of, of a narrative or an incident that we see on the route to Jericho. As Jesus was going on this route with his disciples and a great multitude of people, there by the roadside sat a man by the name of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, he as a blind man. He could not see, he was blinded, he must have heard about Christ. You know, when he cried out to the Lord, he was not crying out for riches or food. He did not. What was he saying? Jesus, son of David. Can someone close it, what he said? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Church, I really appeal to you and I ask that every one of you, including myself, that that will be our prayer today. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I've sinned against you. Have mercy on me. And what we see in the narrative is that Jesus stopped. You know, when you read the Bible, when you, as you read these stories, you must personalize it. You must picture yourself as being part, part of the audience and watching this. Imagine Jesus stood there and looked at Bartimaeus and what was he asking? Do you know what he asked? What do you want me to do for you? You know, when I first read it, I said, Jesus, don't you know he needs his sight? He asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? And then the blind Bartimaeus said, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Church, many of us are like Bartimaeus. We are blinded by sin. Love to dwell in darkness. Be hidden away from everyone. Now Jesus is not going to force himself on us. He is the light of the world. He is standing there and asking every one of us, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? If we say, Jesus, I need my sight. I need that discernment. I know I have sinned against you. Have mercy on me. I need to make a new start. 
you know what, church? This can be a new day for us. For every one of us. The passage that really touched my heart was when the Lord Jesus looked at Zacchaeus and he said, I'm going to come to your house to suffer with you. The worst sinner everybody condemned. He said, I won't stop with you. That's how merciful our God is. When all the disciples were looking at Jesus, Jesus, are you crazy? I'm just paraphrasing this. You won't find these words in the Bible. Are you crazy to go into this man's house? I am going there. I'm going to... What happened at the end? He and his entire household came to know the Lord. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. I'm going to ask all of us to just to rise, please, and, and Keith and the worship team, if you can come. There's a beautiful song that's been selected for us. Pass me not a gentle savior. Hear my humble cry. You know, church, if you can truly say this as your prayer, today, the Lord will give you the sight that you need. He will cleanse you. He'll make it anew for you.